0: Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 may not appear at first sight, but this passage is a wonderful passage to preach on on a Mother's Day and on a Baccalaureate Sunday. I really appreciated meditating on it with that in mind. So Luke chapter 6, we're beginning at verse 17. Hear God's Word. And he came down with them and stood on a level place, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all." And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry." Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. And the grass withers and the flowers fade. And this good word it endures forever. Thanks be to God. And so this is Jesus's Sermon on the Plain. And I think it's the same occasion as Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. The difference is Matthew's is way longer than Luke's. The difference is both are a summary of Jesus' very long sermon. And Luke adapts Jesus' sermon his way to his main purposes and his audience. And Matthew adapts Jesus' sermon to his way, both true to Jesus' intent but emphasizing certain things about Jesus' sermon. We reconcile the differences in geography. As we read last week, Jesus went up on a mountain and prayed all night long. And after praying all night long, He called His disciples to Him on top of the mountain, or near the top. And from them, He selected His 12 apostles. And then this new day, He walks down the mountain to a level spot on the mountain, some sort of plateau, easily accessible by this huge crowd of people and the sick that they're bringing to Him. And so it's both a sermon on a mount and a sermon on a plain. And so thus far in Luke's gospel, we've been progressing through various points. And in chapter four, we saw that the focus was on Jesus Himself, it has to be there when Jesus gave his inaugural sermon, which really governs the rest of Luke and Acts, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a day acceptable to our God. That's what he came to do, he says. And then a very short sermon, but about as powerful as you get, He looks at the crowd and says today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That guy Isaiah longed to see is me and I'm here to do this. Focus on Jesus. And then on chapter 5 through chapter 6, 16 is on showing Jesus fulfill that incredible mission of grace and mercy to the needy, especially sin, but all aspects of need. we have got the great catch, the leper, the paralytic, all of that. You know, a publican that receives the gospel. Life turned upside down. You have people responding to Jesus in faith and people responding to Jesus in rejection. And then we get to our section... This great sermon, and we're seeing for someone who responds to Jesus, what does that mean for us? Who do we become, and how do we live? It's a sermon on discipleship. So three points: the person, the pattern, and the power. Person, power, uh, person, pattern, power. So first, the person. Everything depends on Jesus. It's who's speaking. And one of my favorite professors said it this way: the sermon makes a christological statement. Apart from the person and work of Jesus the Messiah, the blessings here promised are not available. And the obedience here required is not attainable. Like nothing happens except for the person who's speaking here. And so Jesus has selected 12 apostles. He's intentionally relating his movement and the people he is gathering with The mission of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel and the people of Israel in the Old Testament is saying all that God promised, all the hopes and dreams he gave to his people, that mission he entrusted to them, I'm building on it and carrying it to completion because I'm the one it depends upon. So Jesus, in selecting those 12 apostles, he presents himself as the new Moses for us important for us to see him that way just like moses went up a mountain to commune with god and came down the mountain and gathered the 12 tribes at sinai declared to them god's will the 10 commandments made a covenant with them showed them the way to respond in grace to live as god's people to flourish in life to change the world even so jesus goes up a mountain He prays all night, communes with God, gathers his disciples, selects his 12 apostles, comes down the mountain and preaches this sermon, which is how you and I respond to grace, how we live as disciples, how we flourish in life, how we change and transform the world. He's a new Moses carrying us in a new Exodus. We're a new, peculiar, as the King James put it, a peculiar nation in the world. Well, Jesus is also a new David here. So Jesus is presented as a true king bringing in a new kingdom. So Keller asked this question, why does Jesus gather his people on a mountain? Like, why the mountain? Well, throughout the history of the world, mountains have a certain function. If you're a revolutionary and want to bring in a new kingdom, a new administration, you start your movement in the mountains oftentimes because you're a hunted man and you're looking for refuge. You gather your people there. And so we see in David's life that he did this. You recall, he gathered his followers in a mountain in the stronghold. He called it because of Saul's fierce opposition. We have the greater David, Jesus, gathering his followers on a mountain due to the lethal opposition of the Pharisees. And Jesus presents himself as a new king, a greater David, starting a revolutionary kingdom. The world has never seen anything like it. And he makes us into kingdom members to live in the world. And you see, looking at Jesus, all aspects of Jesus, we want to do that. Our identity depends, everything depends upon him. Uh, Mothers must know this. Graduates must know this. Our identity is rooted in him. We're this new kingdom and this new people in the world. We do things differently. We think about ourselves differently differently. You know, I'm, I'm going to go see my mother today in Anderson, South Carolina, and I'm going to walk in the door and I'm going to surprise her. And it's going to take her a moment to know who I am. She's, she's losing her memory. She's forgetting things. I'm, I'm going to be able to jog her memory and she's going to... It's going to be great, but it's going to take a moment. But there's something about that that's moved me deeply, even as that has been so difficult. It's that about every 30 minutes... No matter what we talk about, she's going to say, well, let, let's pray about it. About every 30 minutes. And we look in there and go, Mom, we just prayed about it. <laughs> like, we just did that. Well, let's pray about it. And then she's going to, from nowhere, recite a long passage of Scripture. She's go, I don't know where that came from. I don't even remember memorizing that. But it's coming out of her. And I look at her and say, if my memory goes, what is going to come out of me? And what are going to be the habits that I'm going to insist on? And doesn't it show something so admirable about her? She's not perfect, but she knows where she's grounded and it's coming out when her mind is failing. It's essential for us as we enter into life and think about ourselves that this is the one we ground ourselves in. Well, second, the pattern... What Jesus gives in the Beatitudes and the Woes is a pattern. They're values of a new nation and a new kingdom. We can view them as, as portraits of a disciple. Or maybe you walk down your parents' house or your grandparents' house, you see all these pictures of ancestors. You say, I look like that one. It, it, it's a profile of a kingdom citizen. You look at that and you say, "You know, do I have these traits about my person? They aren't requirements for entrance. You don't measure yourself to think, I've got to do this really well to get accepted. The whole point is that the new Moses and the new kingdom came down and saved those who turned to him. They're traits of a kingdom member, evidences that you have entered, fruit of faith that you're trusting the new Moses, the new David. So I like how Keller says in an article he wrote for the Journal of Biblical Counseling, He says, the Beatitudes describe Jesus' upside-down kingdom. I want that to stick with you today, graduates, an upside-down kingdom. It's his kingdom that's come to overturn the pattern of this world. Fallen world thinks the way it runs things and views things and operates is the right-side-up kingdom. The the fallen world has a right-side-up kingdom to it. We've come and we've become members of an upside-down kingdom. So what are the values and priorities of this fallen world? Well, the values and priorities of this fallen world are presented here in this sermon. It's to be happy and fortunate and blessed. You, You have to be rich. You have to be full now. You have to laugh now. You have to be spoken well of. Um, That's what our world goes after. That's the good life. The fallen world, the right side up kingdom lives for power. Riches relates to power. It lives for comfort. Being full now, the idea of tasty food and nice homes and good health and pleasant friends and enjoyable vacations, the world lives for success, the idea of laughing now. That laughing is not just mirth or joy. It's the kind of laughing when you gloat that you won and someone lost. It's, it's success, like you're one up. Our world lives for respect, being spoken well of, popularity and recognition. And, and these are most natural for us too, like we gravitate towards this. It's the water we swim in. We want these. Yet Jesus, you notice, pronounces woes upon them. Woes upon them. I mean, it's a declaration of judgment and curse. And the point isn't that power and comfort and success and respect are absolutely evil. Of course not. Rather, the point is that the mindset of the world is driven by them, controlled by them, so that if we have them, we're satisfied, self-sufficient, and don't need Jesus and don't care about his kingdom. So Jesus is warning that to give our hearts to these is to remain in a pitiable condition, even if we don't realize it. Under divine judgment, any happiness only limited to this life. And so we say, He says you're in a miserable state if you give yourselves to money. Why is that? Well, he says in that woe you've already received. It's a present tense. You've already received your consolation, meaning any salvation you'll ever have is restricted to what money and power can buy now. Like received is a commercial term. It means it's paid in full. There's nothing else coming for you. You won't receive any riches in the future kingdom Jesus is building. Nothing's stored there. Well, you're also in a dangerous place if your life pursuit is to be full now or to have all the comfort you can now. So why is that the case? Well, he says, you shall be hungry. And what does he mean? Well, it's a short-term and a long-term. Even in this life, if that's what you need to have a sense of blessedness, then, you know, things such as your beauty, it's going to fade your health, it will decline, even in this life. But ultimately, Jesus is saying, look, I am your true comfort. You don't want to miss me. Only eternal emptiness results from that. Hollowness, a gnawing hunger without me. Well, similarly, you're in a sad state if you're obsessed with laughing now, with your attainments or success well, even in this life, your efforts will be forgotten, your records will be surpassed, but ultimately it's saying there is a great prize out there that we all really want and we miss it in our thinking. There's a great prize. Don't forfeit that goal of your heavenly home, your heavenly place. And then finally, you're in a regretful condition if you're consumed with people speaking well of you being respected and popular with the world, with all that vanity and anxiety that results from that. Well, why is that? Well, effectively, you've chosen the world's approval rather than Jesus' approval. Therefore, in the last woe, it speaks of being a false prophet. It's like, I want what, I want what gets me accepted by you rather than holding to the truth. And it means... You won't hear Jesus' welcome and his affirmation and his delight in glory. His approval is what we want. So I think graduates, your, your parents, your mothers earnestly desire you to resist this current. It's a strong current. It's the, it's, it's the right side up kingdom. It just seems right. It seems right. Of course you go after these things. But they want to urge you Take them as good gifts, but don't bank your life on them. You're in an upside-down kingdom. And then mother, there's mothers and fathers, and we know how we slide into our worldly mindset even in our parenting, and how it's so natural that we might say, my child must have power and comfort and success and popularity, or I can't be happy, that my value hinges upon... That, but we recognize how difficult that is and say, no, I'm in an upside-down kingdom. My goals are different. Well, by faith in Jesus, you see, we're citizens of an upside-down kingdom. It's strange to this world. On the outside, we look the same as others, but our heart, our motive for doing things is radically different. You notice Jesus looks at his disciples. Those are the ones he's primarily talking to. He speaks the woes, yes, to warn his disciples, but he mainly speaks the woes to wake people up and call them to become disciples. So he looks at his disciples, especially his apostles, those who just left everything to follow him, and he says, blessed are you who are poor, you who are hungry now, you who weep now, you who are hated and excluded and reviled and spurned as evil on my account, the right side up kingdom can only receive these conditions as a curse, as the worst, but those in the upside down kingdom embrace them as the pathway to blessing. So be mindful of two things here. First, Jesus isn't just saying that Physical poverty and hunger and weeping and scorning are happy or fortunate or glorified conditions and no way. The whole point is that he's just descended the mountain and healed all the sick and cast out the demons of troubled people. His kingdom has entered this fallen world to overturn all the effects of the curse. Those healings point to a final day when there will be no mourning, crying, pain, or death second little point to note is that Jesus isn't saying that the poor, the hungry, the weep, and the scorn just by virtue of their suffering condition are therefore automatically blessed. He's not saying that. Again, he's addressing his disciples, these men that have gathered themselves around Jesus, imitating the chapter 5 responses. They know they're sick people who need a doctor. They know they're leopards who need to be cleansed. They know they're paralytics that need healing. They've turned to Jesus in faith. There's more going on here. So Jesus speaks of this upside-down kingdom. He's talking about portraits of a disciple, profiles of a kingdom citizen. These are patterns of his kingdom. When he says, blessed, he's not just saying happy. He's saying, you are the privileged recipient of divine favor. You share the kingdom of God now. If we joined ourselves in faith to Jesus, we already possess this blessedness he speaks about. And we enter into this reversal of values, so we prize things the world detests. We prize and value poverty and weakness. We prize and value sacrifice, not comfort. Grief. As strange as it is, not laughing in success. Exclusion, not recognition. Jesus' is up, down kingdom esteems these conditions. So what do we mean by this? Is this some sort of masochistic teaching for us today? But we know Jesus is about life. It's about flourishing. This is life he's preaching to, to us So we can say four things about this. First, how do we view those statements? Well, first, it means that though we like power, comfort, success, and recognition, we aren't controlled by them. We receive them as God's good gifts, but our lives do not hinge upon them. In fact, though we enjoy them, we're a little bit leery of them because we know, as Calvin said it beautifully, poverty and hunger begets faith but abundance kills faith. It just does that. Well, second, it means that when poverty and hunger and weeping and scorn comes into our lives as they always will in a fallen world, we can realize the value and the benefit of them. They drive us to see ourselves and to depend on Jesus in a clearer way. If we lose our job, or we get sick or we fail in some area. Or we get left out by people whose approval matters to us. We don't cave in. Rather, we make good use of that trial. We recognize Jesus entrusted it to us for a purpose. Well, third, it means that sometimes we'll experience these as a direct result of following Jesus in his upside-down kingdom. You see, we'll get poorer because we live generously. We'll deprive ourselves of comfort because we're serving others. We may forgo a promotion because we call out some dishonesty. We may get excluded because we stand for Jesus and his truth. And in terms of this final one, increasingly our culture, this will be the case. Graduates have to be prepared for this. Jeremy did a good job with that. Uh, The world views us not just as having weird beliefs, but even harmful beliefs. Like we believe there's one creator, God. We believe in a heaven and a hell. We believe in one redeemer. Like we believe in the dignity of all human life due to the image of God in man, unborn and sick, all kinds of people. We believe sex is a good gift in marriage and marriage is between one man and one woman. These beliefs get you excluded in our world. Fourth, it means we identify or take the side of others who are poor, hungry, weeping, and scorned. You see, that's the incarnation. Jesus came down into our mess because grace gravitates towards need. Love goes downhill. We received grace, we share grace. We received mercy, we extend mercy. In all those ways, Jesus' upside-down kingdom becomes more woven into our persons. And as we adopt this upside-down kingdom perspective, we know we're blessed. It, 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 it's a... Ble- Notice, when you're excluded, he says, on that day... No, you have a great reward in heaven what is that day it's the very day you got excluded right now you are a member of the kingdom that's present tense and we have a colossians 3 mindset in all of life, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above. And it's because our hearts are set on the final realization of that kingdom that we know we have all that already, that it's in our possession, it wakes us up to a different kind of living now. So Keller beautifully says this, our Christian faith isn't the opium of the people, like Mark said, rather it's the smelling salts of a new people. Like it it wakes us up to why we're here and how we get to invest our lives and what it looks like to follow our new Moses and new king. So graduates and mothers, Jesus' sermon is just so applicable to you. Graduates, you're making a huge step. You're getting more freedom, entering into adulthood. And Jesus is urging you as you engage in your different callings to think through practicing His upside down kingdom. It's just a different approach to everything. And mothers, you godly mothers, grandmothers, spiritual mothers, there may be no better illustration than Jesus' upside down kingdom than you. You give up power and embrace weakness, you give up comfort and embrace sacrifice. Everyone's needs come ahead of yours. You often weep for concern for your child's well-being. Genesis 3.16 is constant. It's not just pain in childbearing. It's pain in bringing forth children to the glory of God. Your sensitivity, the emotions of your children is stirring. You take the low place, the hidden place, to help them find their place in the world. You model this for us by faith in Christ. And you especially do this to form Christ in your children. We honor you for this today and are grateful for you and know you are blessed in your labors. Well, finally, the power for all this. So if Jesus just gave us this radical example to live by, it wouldn't be encouraging, it would actually be crushing. I mean, who who can really attain to this? And we could never do it. As much as it would stir our hearts to do so, as lofty as it is, we couldn't do it. But there's more going on here than just a pattern to live by. There's a new power at work because he's the king. And so we look at this sermon, we look at, we look at poverty, we look at hunger, we look at weeping, we look at being excluded, and we say really these these are spiritual conditions when it 's all said and done like these these map onto my life like i 'm destitute of any merit that would get me accepted to heaven, like I weep over my sin i my, my needs aren 't met. I, We look through this lens and we see the leper who desperately needed cleansing, the paralytic who desperately needed healing. So we're undone before God. But then we look at this sermon and we say that we have a redeemer. And the whole point of Jesus coming down the mountain in verse 19 and saying, he's healing all the sick and casting out demons. And it says, power is going out from him power is going out from him there's a new power at work and that power is that he was he was rich like he had everything you know he had everything at the right hand of god and he and he left it all to become poor for you utterly utterly poor sin for you cross hell he was in the very bosom of the father in this intimate loving fellowship with his father, but he left all comfort, all comfort. He became empty. Why have you forsaken me for you? He he had the ultimate success. He was on the throne of heaven. He held the universe together, but he left it all to become helpless for you. He was praised and glorified and spoken well of by all the created beings that really matter in the universe, and yet he Put all that to the side to become shamed and abandoned for you, we look in the sermon, we see the gospel, like Christ plunged the depths of these in order to take your place before the judgment of God and give you the righteousness you need so that you can be welcomed and received rich, comforted, and laughing in the best possible sense. That's the power of the gospel that changes and transforms us. Are you you resting and relying upon this gospel today in such a redeemer? And if you do, that power's at work in your life. And you throw yourself into that same way of living by faith in Christ for the good of this world. May God bless each of you. Amen.